This is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings, and I'm your host, Greg Campion. On this show, we intend to dig below the headlines to find out what's really going on in the public and private asset markets around the world. From fixed income and equities to alternatives and real estate, we'll be speaking with Bearings experts from across the globe to get a glimpse into where they're seeing risks and opportunities today. If you like the show and want to hear more from us, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search Streaming Income. Or visit us on bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. My guest on today's show is Dr. Ricardo Adroge, who is head of Bearings Global Sovereign Debt and Currency Group. Ricardo is the lead portfolio manager for the firm's emerging markets local debt and blended total return strategies. And he also serves as a portfolio manager for the Bearings EM Sovereign Hard Currency Debt Strategy. Based in Boston, Ricardo joined the firm in 2013. And prior to that, he held various roles at Kabaizan Investment Group, Wellington Management, and the International Monetary Fund, among others. We covered a lot in this conversation today, starting high level and looking at the global economy. Ricardo gave his views on the chances for a recession within the next 12 months. Uh, We then talked about a lot of the political hotspots out there today, including China, Argentina, and the Middle East. And then we also talked about ESG and how Ricardo and team are factoring in ESG risks when they're looking at different countries. And finally, we talked about where Ricardo and team are seeing opportunities today, and some of them are actually quite counterintuitive. All right, Ricardo Adroge, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very good to have you here. I feel like it's an, always an opportune time to have you here. There's never a shortage of topics to focus on when it comes to emerging markets. That's certainly true today as we look around and, and we look at the political situation in Argentina, uh, trade wars obviously continuing to go on between the U.S. and China, and also some of the unrest that we're seeing in the Middle East. I'd like to talk about each of those situations, but maybe let's start very high level and get your views just overall on where we are from a global economic standpoint today. What does the overall health of the global economy look like? And how is that impacting your view on emerging market economies? Well, it's great to be here. The global economy seems to be on a slowing path. Uh, It started primarily in Europe and Japan, followed by maybe a little bit of China. And the most recent numbers in the U.S. would suggest that the U.S. economy has started on a slowing path. That creates headwinds for all the economies. That creates uncertainties for market participants in the financial markets. And they seem to be related with the increased number of bonds that are falling into negative yields. The global economy seems to be asking for accommodation, uh, any form of accommodation, fiscal, monetary, uh, credit. So that's the situation in which the global economy appears to be at this time. Okay. So if you, everything you're looking at, the manufacturing numbers, what rates, what currencies are telling you, et cetera, is you kind of pull that into one picture and, and, and try to understand what it's telling you. How worried are you today on a scale of one to 10 that we're going to see a, a recession in the next 12 months? I'm partially worried. I would say slightly more than 50%, mm-hmm. potentially a little bit higher. The truth is the market, the financial markets have eased a lot in the last eight to 10 months interest rates in the U.S., but globally have come down a lot. Fiscal policies in some of these countries have announced some easing as well. Even Germany has announced going into a more green economy that would give uh, a great path for increased spending in an economy that has the ability to spend. Mm -hmm. 
So it is difficult to see how all those measures will not have a dampening effect on the slowdown, meaning that the economic activity in the world may start to either recover or may see the end of a slowdown. Now, the data so far uh, have not suggested that the slowdown has eased much. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's why I am still concerned about the recession coming up. Let's turn our attention to uh, some of the specific countries that are making a lot of headlines today. So maybe let's start with China. I'd like to understand what your base case is with regards to the trade war and how you see that playing out, let's say, over the next 12 months or so, but also with regards to China's economy itself. Uh, the Chinese economy traditionally has always uh, grown at about 6 to 7% on lower years and much higher in uh, very strong years. The target for the government has been around 6 to 6.5%. The economic data coming out of China suggests that maybe it's a little bit below that. And the surprising thing is that the government of China doesn't seem to be too nervous about it. Mm. As a matter of fact, when we link that to global trade and uh, policies implemented from the U.S. to basically uh, bring China to a negotiating table that is unclear what the U.S. wants from it, it has had an effect on China, meaning exports to the U.S. have come down. Mm -hmm. But the Chinese authorities do not seem to be in a hurry to reach a trade deal. As a matter of fact, it's pretty interesting that nowadays, uh, President Trump's announcements that a trade deal with China is imminent has absolutely no effect in the financial markets, unlike in the past. Mm. So it appears to us that the market and us are on the same page. We don't think that China is in a rush to get a trade deal with the U.S., it's not that China doesn't feel the negative economic consequences of not getting a trade deal. It's just that China is willing to put up with the negative economic consequences, most likely because they perceive that a trade deal with Trump's successor will be more beneficial to China than trying to reach a deal with President Trump at this stage. Mm. So if you look at those negotiations and you just look at what they mean, uh, bigger picture, some argue that we're seeing basically a reversal in globalization. Do you agree with that hypothesis? And if so, does that potentially represent a long-term headwind for emerging markets? Yes, I perceive the current situation to be uh, a reversal of globalization. It is not unheard of, at least in the U.S. history, that the U.S. engages with the world and then disengages with the world on pre-standard cycles. And President Trump's policies towards trade is a disengagement of the U.S., from the rest of the world. And that is a headwind that potentially is a longer-term headwind, not just for emerging markets, but obviously for emerging markets as well, because emerging market countries tend to be more dependent on trade. They're smaller economies. They need to fulfill their needs uh, for goods and services by trading. And so the fact that global trade is crumbling and there's no leadership in global trade is creating all tensions across countries on this issue. I want to kind of pick up on that concept of engagement versus disengagement and look at another region, and that's the Middle East. So we've seen a decent amount of geopolitical activity uh, in the Middle East recently. So talk to me just about how you're thinking about the Middle East generally as an investor. So the Middle East is a very difficult region in the world. And the situation that we face today is the power of the Middle East used to be in the hands of Great Britain up until the Second War and then was taken over by the U.S., and now with the U.S. being basically self-sufficient in oil and not really requiring to be engaged, the U.S. has taken the view that they can leave the region. So from our perspective, the Middle East being an unstable region now is likely to be getting more unstable because the U.S. is walking out of it. 
And when the U.S. walks out of it, we have several powers in there fighting for uh, territory, fighting for security, fighting for oil. So we have Russia, we have Iran, we have Syria, we have Israel, we have Saudi Arabia, uh, we have the Europeans that are right next to it. So there's a lot of interest in that region. Uh, we have Turkey, and all of them basically will have to fight it out. And so it makes that full region significantly more unstable from a political perspective, from an economic perspective, and obviously from an investment perspective. So we are quite uninvolved on the Middle East in terms of investments. Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to monitor that, uh, obviously, in the months and years ahead. Another country I wanted to bring up, and it's one that's made quite a few headlines, is your native country, actually, of Argentina. So obviously has had a, a difficult year, uh, especially from a financial market perspective. Maybe let's rewind, and it would be great to just get your review of what has actually happened in Argentina this year. Why did it happen? Uh, what the effects were? And then how you see things potentially playing out in the next 6 to 12 months. So the country in 2015 elected a new government that had a very different political sign than the outgoing government, meaning it was a government that believed in markets and they believed in freedom. The previous government believed in social justice and was willing to trample on freedoms, uh, individual political freedoms, to pursue what they saw as social justice. In the four years from 2015 to 2019, the government in place thought that they had four years to rebuild the economy that had been quite devastated by the previous administration. But uh, somewhere in the middle, they realized that they had run out of credit. What has happened is there's primary elections in Argentina, and the primary elections went against the government, massively against the government. And as a result, the markets lost all faith that this administration was going to stay in power, mm -hmm. and therefore market prices dropped by 50%, and so the country lost absolutely all credit that was left, right. including the IMF. On top of that, there was a bank run, so they lost even internal credit, mm. uh, the credit that is channeled internally through the banking system. And so it went into a deeper recession. Now elections are coming out. They're very, very soon, towards the end of October. And the most likely outcome is that the opposition will be elected. The problem is that the opposition means going back to uh, social justice at the expense of uh, personal freedoms. So financial assets losing 50-odd percent of their value obviously is devastating for foreign investors investing in the debt of that country. What are you monitoring now for the next, say, 6 to 12 months or perhaps even longer than that? And how are you trying to figure out if there is actual value there or not? Because I don't know if you would consider Argentina's sovereign bonds a distressed asset or not at this point, but how does your team look at that? How do you decide if there's actual value there or if it's something you want to completely steer clear of? So it's very difficult to decide what the value of a bond is when the borrower tells you very clearly that they won't pay. Mm. And so that creates a really difficult position for investors like us when we can estimate what is the capacity of a country to pay, but when the willingness of the country, especially when it's so deeply rooted in the popular vote, then it makes it very difficult to say uh, this is a good time to invest. Mm -hmm. So our base case scenario is that the opposition wins the presidency so the most likely outcome is that the president gets elected, Alberto Fernandez. He doesn't have uh, support from the markets. He doesn't have credit. Mm -hmm. 
And he ends up having to resign and President Cristina Kirchner take over hmm. and brings back the country to before 2015 when she was the president. Hmm. Okay. And then in that scenario, I assume they default on their obligations. The default seems at this point to be a given. It's more what is the recovery value. Mm-hmm. And the recovery value is very difficult when basically every four years the government gets elected and says the previous government's dead are not Argentina's dead. We don't want to pay them. What's the kind of sentiment on the ground that you hear from family and friends? Well, there's two camps. One camp is uh, very distressed. Uh, it's the camp that sees it the way market participants sees it. And then there is the camp that basically voted for change that for some reason uh, believes that presidents are all-powerful and they're to blame for all economic ills. And they believe that by changing the president, they will be able to find a new economic equilibrium uh, that will make their lives better. You know, it's not all doom and gloom out there, despite the fact that we have talked about some challenging situations with uh, regards to China, with regards to the Middle East, and with regards to Argentina as well. Tell me about the performance of emerging markets through the third quarter, and then tell me about how that breaks down by different sub-asset classes. And if you wouldn't mind, I know we talked about this on our first conversation, but just remind our listeners, what are those different flavors of emerging markets debt? Sure. So emerging market fixed income basically comes in two main forms. One is U.S. dollar-denominated bonds, and one is local currency-denominated bonds. The hard currency bonds also come in two forms. One is sovereign bonds, and the other one is corporate bonds. U.S. dollar-denominated sovereign bonds have returned at the index level around 13% year-to-date. The corporate bonds, that is, corporate issues from emerging markets that are denominated in U.S. dollars, have returned about 11%. And the local markets, that include interest rates and currencies, have returned about 9%. And within the latter, the 9% has been all interest rate because the currencies have actually detracted. So currency in emerging markets have actually weakened against the U.S. dollar, but bonds from emerging markets have rallied together with U.S. treasuries and global rates. Got it, got it. So pretty good performance through the different sub-asset classes. Sovereign hard currency bonds, the clear outperformer year-to-date, and largely due to rate moves, given their higher duration. But I guess within that, we've talked about Argentina and some of the other countries, there's quite a bit of dispersion within the index itself, isn't there? Yeah, so having a great year in overall index performance or at the market level doesn't necessarily mean that all the countries or all the corporates in that space have done equally well. And this is quite telling. The past year, countries like Argentina or Venezuela or Zambia had very large negative returns, while countries like Ukraine or El Salvador or even Ecuador have decent positive returns. And so we perceive that to be the clearest indication of active management. Mm-hmm. And your colleague, uh, Jim Karashidan, actually uh, recently published a piece that our listeners can find on bearings.com under viewpoints. Uh, I think it's titled, Does Active Management Pay in EM Sovereign Debt? And he looks in pretty good detail at the performance over the last year, last three years, and that dispersion uh, within the index and how you've seen clear outperformers, clear underperformers. The other concept, I guess, in that piece that he talks about is the outperformance that we've seen among investment-grade rated sovereigns recently relative to high-yield sovereigns. I'm interested if that's an opportunity or if it's if something that will persist. So 
the interesting thing is the market has done really well. The emerging market has done really well over the last year, over the last three years, even over the last five years in the case of hard currency strategies. The more challenging situation is that in recent times, that is in the year of 2019, a big part of that performance has been on the back of US Treasury rallies that has helped primarily investment-grade sovereigns. The high yield is more speculative. And so as a result, and what has happened this year, is that high yield spreads have actually widened. They have not followed the US Treasuries to the same degree. And in some cases, the spread over US Treasuries has gone larger. So nowadays, US denominated paper at the sovereign level that is high yield is trading about 400 basis points, that is 4% over investment-grade sovereigns. We estimate that the reasonable difference between the two should be around 300 basis points. So then when investors wonder, well, the fact that U.S. Treasuries have come in a lot, the U.S. Treasury yields have dropped a lot, and that has helped emerging market hard currency asset classes, if there were to be a sell-off in U.S. Treasuries, wouldn't that mean doom for the hard currency asset classes? Our answer is no. And the reason is mostly because in that case, it would be most likely a situation in which the U.S. economy is doing very well, that growth is picking up in the world, that the recession fears disappear. And in that environment, high yield is a great asset to be. And today, it looks cheap. The other risk I just wanted to bring up that's obviously front and center for our investors, uh, for most managers out there as well, is environmental, social, and corporate governance factors and how to think about them. Probably 90% of what we hear about ESG relates to corporates, right? So there's a lot of literature out there. There's a lot of discussion around how to evaluate corporate issuers, whether they're debt or equity issuers, when it comes to ESG. We don't hear as much about sovereigns or governments. So talk to me about how you and your team think about ESG when you're evaluating countries and how that's part of your process. Emerging market sovereigns and sovereigns in general, not just emerging markets, are very complex institutions, organizations, entities. And so applying relatively simple rules to, especially on those categories of environment, social governance indicators, is very difficult because for every point that one could make, one could make a counterpoint by looking at a different part of the same complex, which is a sovereign entity. Now, that doesn't mean that ESG doesn't apply to sovereigns. And as a matter of fact, it is core to our investment process because we think that in order to be successful in investments, we need to select sovereigns that are sustainable and that sustainably can produce returns to investors. Now, this is something that there's a very, very broad literature in development economics and a slightly smaller literature in environmental economics that we have reviewed to try to assess on a sustainable basis what are countries able to do to improve their conditions. And number one, we find that the starting point is not to be considered when we invest from a sustainable or ESG perspective. The starting point is important in addressing how to size the position and the risk that individual countries may be facing because of their starting point. Let me be more specific. It's a very small country that is very prone to earthquakes, for example. We need to be aware that building a big position in a country like that could be risky because all of a sudden could be an earthquake that devastates the economy and the investments go to zero. But that's a starting position. What we care more from an ESG perspective is the trend that the government has pushed the country into. And so a country like Hungary, for example, is a country that is doing really well economically, 
but we don't think it is structurally sustainable, and not so much because Orban, the prime minister, likes to get in fights with the EU, but more because a minority can have a majority, constitutional majority control, which means it can crush the rights of the minorities. And that is structurally embedded in the constitution of Hungary, and that creates a very unstable social and governance environment. And so to us, Hungary, for example, is a weak ESG country. On the other hand, we think that El Salvador is a strong ESG country. Most people in the US and around the world, probably what they know of El Salvador is one of the highest criminal rates in the world. Probably they know that uh, El Salvador is a very small economy that has sent a lot of immigration to the US. Probably they know that El Salvador in the 1980s had a pretty nasty civil war. Well, what we find in El Salvador is all those are true initial conditions of El Salvador. However, their governance is top-notch across all emerging markets. They do have a judiciary that is independent from parliament, and the parliament is independent from the presidency. And each one of them, independent is not just in the constitution, independent is in their space, in their powers, and the respect that they have for the powers of each of the other branches of government. And that, as an investor, provides a type of insurance security that we will get paid. Specifically, the presidency in El Salvador couldn't spend what the Congress wouldn't allow them to borrow. Congress wouldn't allow the presidency to borrow, the presidency wouldn't spend. That doesn't happen very frequently in emerging markets. And the fact that it happens in El Salvador and the market seems to be ignoring it has created great opportunities. That's a great example. What else, as you look out there, and we've spent a lot of time talking about risks today, but what else looks like an interesting opportunity to you today? You mentioned El Salvador. I'm interested in that. I'm interested in where else you're, the team is seeing value today. So we find uh, Ukraine and Mexico are two very interesting opportunities in the markets today. I would say Mexico is a little bit more controversial from an investment community perspective. From a general layman perspective, I guess Ukraine could be more controversial, mm -hmm. especially what's going on with news coming out of Ukraine sure. and whether there's pressure or not pressure to do one thing or another. From a, an economic and political development, uh, Ukraine has gone a long ways uh, moving towards a more democratic system, a system that is moving towards the West, is integrated into Europe. Mm -hmm. We have free and fair elections in Ukraine that have resulted in changing governments. And economically speaking, they have pursued the policies recommended by the IMF. They have had full support from the IMF. And now the market is finally buying into the fact that Ukraine is or appears to be under the new government of Zelensky in a more sustainable long-term economic path. Uh, there's obviously risks. The relationship with Russia is troublesome. But President Zelensky is making a big effort to try to put that behind especially in the first year of his administration, which is when he has the highest political power. So we've done a bit of a whirlwind around emerging markets today. As you look out over the next year, as 2020 starts to come into view, as we've got no shortage of risks, political elections, including here in the U.S., anything you would like to leave listeners with today as they think about emerging markets and specifically emerging markets debt? as we head into 2020? So emerging markets is a vast part of the world. It's equivalent to almost $34 trillion in GDP. The US GDP is about 20 trillion. So it's a very, very large part of the world. It's a very diverse part of the world. 
There's over 80 countries that are categorized as emerging markets. There's over a thousand companies that are emerging market corporations. So there's a lot of opportunity in emerging markets. And all these different emerging markets are not subject to the same type of shocks. They're oil producers, but there's also oil consumers. And so in this world, having the opportunity to invest and select the right names, corporates, sovereigns, currencies, rates, and do it in a nimble way, I think is the best way to approach the emerging markets. So in a blended type approach that doesn't have a benchmark, that aims to select only the good apples, while avoiding lots of others that are not really good apples, we think is the best way to approach it. Got it, got it. That makes a lot of sense to me. Well, Ricardo, it's always a pleasure. I appreciate all your insights today, and thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to today's show. If you have feedback or ideas on how we can improve it, we want to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. And if you'd like to stay up to date with our latest episodes, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're there, please take a moment to rate the show or leave us a review. They're all very much appreciated and they make the show easier for others to find. Thanks again for listening.